Chapter Four of the Heir of Redcliffe by Charlotte M. Young. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four A fig for all dactyls, a fig for all spondees, a fig for all dunces and domini grandees. Scott. How glad I am! exclaimed Guy, entering the drawing room. Wherefore? inquired Charles. I thought I was too late, and I'm very glad to find no one arrived, and Mr. and Mrs. Edmonston not come down. But where have you been? I lost my way on the top of the down. I fancied someone told me there was a view of the sea to be had there. And can't you exist without a view of the sea? Guy laughed. Everything looks so dull. It is as if the view was dead or imprisoned, walled up by wooden hill and wanting that living ripple, heaving and struggling. "'And your fine rocks,' said Laura. "'I wish you could see the shagstone, a great island mass, sloping on one side, precipitous on the other, with the spray dashing on it. If you see it from ever so far off, there is still that white foam coming and going, a glancing speck, like the light in an eye. "'Hark!' a carriage the young man and the young man's companion said charles how can you said laura what would anyone suppose mr thorndale to be not philip's valet said charles if it is true that no man is a hero to his valet de chambre whereas what is not philip to the honourable james thorndale philip alexander and Bucephalus into the bargain, suggested Amy, in her demure, frightened whisper, sending all but Laura into a fit of laughter, the harder to check because the steps of the parties concerned were heard approaching. Mr. Thorndale was a quiet individual, one of those of whom there is least to be said, so complete a gentleman that it would have been an insult to call him gentlemanlike agreeable and clever rather than otherwise good-looking with a high-bred air about him so that it always seemed strange that he did not make more impression a ring at the front door almost immediately followed their arrival encore asked philip looking at laura with a sort of displeased surprise unfortunately yes said laura drawing aside one of my uncle's family parties said philip I wish I had not brought Thorndale. Laura, what is to be done to prevent the tittering that always takes place when Amy and those Harpers are together? Some game, said Laura. He signed approval, but she had time to say no more, for her father and mother came down, and some more guests entered. It was just such a party that continually grew up at Hollywell, for Mr. Edmonston was so fond of inviting that his wife never knew in the morning how many would assemble at her table in the evening. But she was used to it, and too good a manager even to be called so. She liked to see her husband enjoy himself in his good-natured, open-hearted way. The change was good for Charles, and thus it did very well, and there were few houses in the neighborhood more popular than Hollywell. The guests this evening were Maurice de Courcy, a wild young Irishman, all noise and nonsense, 
a great favorite with his cousin, Mr. Edmonston. Two Miss Harpers, daughters of the late clergyman, good-natured, second-rate girls. Dr. Mayern, Charles's kind old physician, the friend and much-loved counselor at Hollywell, and the present vicar, Mr. Ross, with his daughter Mary. Mary Ross was the greatest friend that the Miss Edmonstons possessed, though, she being five-and-twenty, they had not arrived at perceiving that they were on the equal terms of young ladyhood. She had lost her mother early, and had owed a great deal to the kindness of Mrs. Edmonston, as she grew up among her numerous elder brothers. She had no girlhood. She was a boy till fourteen, and then a woman, and she was scarcely altered since the epoch of that transition, the same in likings, taste, and duties. Papa was all the world to her, and pleasing him had much the same meaning now as then. Her brothers were like playfellows. Her delights were still a lesson in Greek from Papa, a school children's feast, a game at play, a new book. It was only a pity other people did not stand still, too. Papa, indeed, had never grown sensibly older since the year of her mother's death. But her brothers were whiskered men, with all the cares of the world and no holidays. The schoolgirls went out to service, and were as a last year's brood to an old hen. The very children she had fondled were young ladies, as old to all intents and purposes as herself. And here were even Laura and Amy Edmonston, fallen into that bad habit of growing up. Though little Amy had still much of the kitten in her composition, and could play as well as Charlotte or Mary herself, when they had the garden to themselves. Mary took great pains to amuse Charles, always walking to see him in the worst weather, when she thought other visitors likely to fail, and chatting with him as if she was the idlest person in the world, though the quantity she did at home and in the parish would be too amazing to be recorded. Spirited and decided, without superfluous fears and fineries, she had a firm, robust figure and a rosy, good-natured face, with a manner that, though perfectly feminine, had in it an air of strength and determination. Hollywell was a hamlet, two miles from the parish church of East Hill, and Mary had thus seen very little of the Edmonston's guest, having only been introduced to him after church on Sunday. The pleasure on which Charles chiefly reckoned for that evening was the talking him over with her when the ladies came in from the dining-room. The Miss Harpers, with his sisters, gathered round the piano, and Mrs. Edmonston sat at Charles's feet, while Mary knitted and talked. So you get on well with him. He's one of those people who are never in the way, and yet you never can forget their presence, said Mrs. Edmonston. His manners are quite the pink of courtesy, said Mary. Like his grandfather's, said Mrs. Edmonston, that old-school deference and attention is very chivalrous, and sits prettily and quaintly on his high spirits and animation. I hope it will not wear off. A vain hope, said Charles. At present he is like that German myth, Caspar Hauser, 
who lived till twenty in a cellar. It is lucky for Mamma that, in his green state, he is courtly instead of bearish. Lucky for you, too, Charlie. He spoils you finely. He has the rare perfection of letting me know my own mind. I never knew what it was to have my own way before. Is that your complaint, Charlie? What next? said Mary. So you think I have my way, do you, Mary? That is all envy, you see, and very much misplaced. Could you guess what a conflict it is every time I am helped up that mountain of a staircase, or the slope of my sofa is altered? Last time Philip stayed here, every step cost an argument, till at last, through sheer exhaustion, I left myself a dead weight on his hands, to be carried up by main strength. And, after all, he is such a great, strong fellow, that I am afraid he did not mind it. So next time I crutched myself down alone, and I hope that did provoke him. Sir Guy is so kind that I am ashamed, said Mrs. Evanston. It seems as if we had brought him for the sole purpose of waiting on Charles. Half his heart is in his horse, said Charles. Never had man such delight in the brute creation. They have been his chief playfellows, said Mrs. Evanston. The chief of his time was spent in wandering in the woods or on the beach, watching them in their ways. "'I fairly dreamt of that Elysium of his last night,' said Charles. "'A swamp half-frozen on a winter's night, full of wild ducks. "'Here, Charlotte, come and tell Mary the role of Guy's pets.' Charlotte began, "'There was the seagull and the hedgehog and the fox.' and the badger and the jay, and the monkey, that he bought because it was dying and cured it, only it died the next winter, and a toad, and a raven, and a squirrel, and that will do, Charlotte. Oh, but Mary's not heard the names of all his dogs, and Mary, he has cured bustle of hunting my puss. We held them up to each other, and puss hissed horribly, but bustle did not mind it a bit. And the other day, when Charles tried to set him at her, he would not take the least notice. Now, Charlotte, said Charles, waving his hand, with a provoking mock politeness, have the goodness to return to your friends. Tea over, Laura proposed the game of definitions. You know it, Philip, said she. You taught us. Yes, I learnt it of your sisters, Thorndale, said Philip. "'Oh, pray, let us have it. It must be charming,' exclaimed Miss Harper, on this recommendation. "'Definitions,' said Charles, contemptuously. "'Dr. Johnson must be the hand for them.' "'They are just the definitions not to be found in Johnson,' said Mr. Thorndale. "'Our standing specimen is adversity, which may be differently explained according to your taste, as a toad with a precious jewel in its head.' or the test of friendship. The spirit of words, said Guy, looking eager and interested. Well, we'll try, said Charles, though I can't say it sounds to me promising. Come, Maurice, define an Irishman. No, no, don't let us be personal, said Laura. I thought of the word happiness. We're each to write a definition on a slip of paper, 
then compare them. The game was carried on with great spirit for more than an hour. It was hard to say which made most fun, Maurice, Charles, or Guy. The last no longer a spectator, but an active contributor to the sport. When the break-up came, Mary and Amabel were standing over the table together, collecting the scattered papers, and observing that it had been very good fun. Some so characteristic, said Amy, such as Morris's definition of happiness. A row at Dublin. Some were very deep, though, said Mary. If it is not treason, I should like to make out whose that other was of happiness. You mean this, said Amy, gleams from a brighter world, too soon eclipsed or forfeited. I thought it was Philip's, but is Sir Guy's writing? How very sad. I should not like to think so. And he was so merry all the time. This is his, too, I see. This one about riches being the freight for which the traveller is responsible. There is a great deal of character in them, said Mary. I should not have wondered at any of us, penniless people, philosophizing in the fox and grape style, but for him, and at his age. He has been brought up so as to make the theory of wisdom come early, said Philip, who was nearer than she thought. Is that intended for disparagement? she asked quickly. I think very highly of him. He has a great deal of sense and right feeling, was Philip's sedate answer, and he turned away to say some last words to Mr. Thorndale. The Rosses were the last to depart, marrying cloak and clogs, while Mr. Edmonston lamented that it was in vain to offer the carriage, and Mary laughed and thanked, and said the walk home with Papa was the greatest of treats in the frost and starlight. "'Don't I pity you, who always go out to dinner in a carriage?' were her last words to Laura. "'Well, Guy,' said Charlotte, "'how do you like it?' "'Very much indeed. It was very pleasant.' "'You're getting into the fairy ring,' said Laura, smiling. "'Aye,' he said, smiling too. "'But it does not turn to tinsel. "'Would it, if I saw more of it?' and he looked at Mrs. Edmonston. "'It would be no compliment to ourselves to say so,' she answered. "'I suppose tinsel or gold depends on the using,' said he, thoughtfully. "'There are some lumps of solid gold among those papers. I am sure, one in particular, about a trifle. "'May I see that again? I mean, little things on little wings bear little souls to heaven.' Oh, that was only a quotation, said Amy, turning over the definitions again with him, and laughing at some of the most amusing. While in the meantime, Philip went to help Laura, who was putting some books away in the anteroom. Yes, Laura, he said. He is thought, mind and soul. He is no mere rattle. No, indeed. Who could help seeing his superiority over Morris? If only he does not pervert his gifts, and if it is not all talk, I don't like such excessive openness about his feelings. It is too like talking for talking's sake. 
Mama says it is the transparency of youthfulness. You know he has never been at school, so his thoughts come out in security of sympathy, without fear of being laughed at. But it is very late. Good night. The frost turned to rain the next morning, and the torrents streamed against the window, seeming to have a kind of attraction for Philip and Guy, who stood watching them. Guy wondered if the floods would be out at Redcliffe, and his cousins were interested by his description of the sudden, angry rush of the mountain streams, eddying fiercely along, bearing with them tree and rock, while the valleys became lakes, and the little mounds islets. And the trees looked strangely out of proportion when only their branches were visible. Oh, a great flood is famous fun, said he. Surely, said Philip, I have heard a legend of your being nearly drowned in some flood. Yes, said Guy, I had a tolerable ducking. Oh, tell us about it, said Amy. I, I have a curiosity to hear a personal experience of drowning, said Charles. Come, begin at the beginning. I was standing watching the tremendous force of the stream, when I saw an unhappy old ram floating along, bleeding so piteously, and making such absurd, helpless struggles, that I could not help pulling off my coat and jumping in after him. It was very foolish, for the stream was too strong. I was two years younger then. Moreover, the beast was very heavy, and not at all grateful for any kind intentions, and I found myself sailing off to the sea with the prospect of a good many rocks before long. But just then an old tree stretched out its friendly arms through the water. It stopped the sheep, and I caught hold of the branches, and managed to scramble up, while my friend got entangled in them with his wool. Omnicrom protes, pecus eget altos with Saramontes, quoted Philip. Alium et summa, genus haset ulmo, added Guy. Alium, exclaimed Philip, with a face of horror. Don't you know that O oh, in always is short? Do anything but take liberties with Horace. Get out of the tree first, Guy, said Charles. For at present, your history seems likely to end with a long ohon. Well, Triton, not Proteus, came to the rescue at last, said Guy, laughing. I could not stir, and the tree bent so frightfully with the current that I expected every minute we should all go together. So I had nothing for it but to halloo as loud as I could. No one heard but Triton, the old Newfoundland dog, who presently came swimming up, so eager to help, poor fellow, that I thought he would have throttled me or hurt himself in the branches. I took off my handkerchief and threw it to him, telling him to take it to Arnaud, who I knew would understand it as a signal of distress. Did he? How long had you to wait? I don't know. It seemed long enough before a most welcome boat appeared, with some men in it and Triton in an agony. They would never have found me but for him, for my voice was gone. Indeed, the next thing I remember was lying on the grass in the park, and Markham saying, Well, sir, if you do wish to throw away your life, 
Let it be for something better worth saving than Farmer Holt's vicious old ram. In the language of the great Mr. Toots, said Charles, I'm afraid you got very wet. Were you the worse for it? said Amy. Not in the least. I was so glad to hear it was Holt's. For you must know that I had behaved very ill to Farmer Holt. I had been very angry at his beating our old hound, for, as he thought, worrying his sheep. Not that Dart ever did, though. And was the ram saved? Yes, and next time I saw it, it nearly knocked me down. Would you do it again? said Philip. I don't know. I hope you had a medal from the Humane Society, said Charles. That would have been more proper for Triton. Yours should have been an ovation, said Charles, cutting the O absurdly short and looking at Philip. Laura saw that the spirit of teasing was strong in Charles this morning and suspected that he wanted to stir up what he called the deadly feud, and she hastened to change the conversation by saying, "'You quite impressed Guy with your translation of Fra Cristoforo.' "'Indeed, I must thank you for recommending the book,' said Guy. "'How beautiful it is!' "'I am glad you entered into it,' said Philip. "'It has every quality that a fiction ought to have. "'I never read anything equal to the repentance of the nameless man.' "'Is he your favorite character?' said Philip, looking at him attentively. "'Oh, no, of course not, though he is so grand that one thinks most about him. "'But no one can be cared about as much as Lucia.' "'Lucia? She never struck me as more than a well-painted peasant girl,' said Philip. "'Oh!' cried Guy, indignantly. "'Then, controlling himself, he continued.' She pretends to know more than she is, but she shows the beauty of goodness in itself in a, a wonderful way. And think of the power of those words of hers over that gloomy, desperate man. Your sympathy with the inominato again, said Philip. Every subject seemed to excite Guy to a dangerous extent, as Laura thought, and she turned to Philip to ask if he would not read to them again. I brought this book on purpose, said Philip. I wish to read you a description of that print from Raphael. You know it, the Madonna di San Sisto. The one you brought to show us, said Amy, with the two little angels. Yes, here is the description, and he began to read. Dwell in the form of the child, more than human in grandeur, seated on the arms of the Blessed Virgin, as on an august throne. Note the tokens of divine grace, his ardent eyes, what a spirit, what a countenance is his. Yet his very resemblance to his mother denotes sufficiently that he is of us and takes care for us. Beneath are two figures adoring, each in their own manner. On one side is a pontiff, on the other a virgin each, a most sweet and solemn example, the one of age, the other of maidenly piety and reverence. Between are two-winged boys, evidently presenting a wonderful pattern of childlike piety. Their eyes, indeed, are not turned towards the Virgin, but both in face and gesture, 
they show how careless of themselves they are in the presence of God. All were struck by the description. Guy did not speak at first, but the solemn expression of his face showed how he felt its power and reverence. Philip asked if they would like to hear more, and Charles assented. Amy worked, Laura went on with her perspective, and Guy sat by her side, making concentric circles with her compasses, or when she wanted them he tormented her parallel ruler, or cut the pencils, never letting his fingers rest except at some high or deep passage, or when some interesting discussion arose. All were surprised when luncheon time arrived. Charles held out his hand for the book. It was given with a slight smile, and he exclaimed, Latin! I thought you were translating. Is it your own property? Yes. Is it very tough? I would read it, if anyone would read it with me. Do you mean me? said Guy. I should like it very much. But you have seen how little Latin I know. That is the very thing, said Charles. That always of yours was music. I would have made you a knight of the golden fleece on the spot. Tudors I could get by shoals, but a fellow dunce is inestimable. It is a bargain, then, said Guy, if Philip has done with the book and will lend it to us. The luncheon bell rang, and they all adjourned to the dining-room. Mr. Edmonston came in when luncheon was nearly over, rejoicing that his letters were done, but then he looked disconsolately from the window and pitied the weather. Nothing for it but billiards. People might say it was nonsense to have a billiard table in such a house, but for his part he found there was no getting through a wet day without them. Philip must beat him as usual and Guy might have one of the young ladies to make a fourth. "'Thank you,' said Guy. "'But I don't play.' "'Not play, eh? "'Well, we will teach you in the spinning of a ball, "'and I'll have my little Amy to help me against you and Philip.' "'No, thank you,' repeated Guy, coloring. "'I am under a promise.' "'Huh? Eh? "'What, your grandfather?' He could see no harm in such play as this. For nothing, you understand. You did not suppose I meant anything else. Oh, no, of course not, eagerly replied Guy. But it is impossible for me to play. I promised never even to look on at a game at billiards. Ah, poor man. He had too much reason, uttered Mr. Edmonston to himself, but catching a warning look from his wife. He became suddenly silent. Guy, meanwhile, sat looking lost in sad thoughts, till, rousing himself, he exclaimed, "'Don't let me prevent you.' Mr. Edmonston needed but little persuasion, and carried Philip off to the billiard-table in the front hall. "'Oh, I'm so glad,' cried Charlotte, who had, within the last week, learnt Guy's value as a playfellow. Now you will never go to those stupid billiards, but I shall have you always, every rainy day. Come and have a real good game at ball on the stairs. She already had hold of his hand, and would have dragged him off at once, had he not waited to help Charles back to his sofa. And in the meantime, she tried in vain to persuade her more constant playmate, Amabel, to join the game. 
Poor little Amy regretted the being obliged to refuse, and she listened to the merry sounds and bouncing balls, sighing more than once at having turned into a grown-up young lady, while Philip observed to Laura, who was officiating as billiard-marker, that Guy was still a mere boy. The fates favored Amy at last for about half after three. The billiards were interrupted, and Philip, pronouncing the rain to be almost over, invited Guy to take a walk, and they set out in a very gray wet mist, while Charlotte and Amy commenced a vigorous game at battledore and shuttlecock. The gray mist had faded into twilight, and twilight into something like night, when Charles was crossing the hall, with the aid of Amy's arm, Charlotte carrying the crutch behind him, and Mrs. Edmonston helping Laura with her perspective apparatus, all on their way to dress for dinner. The door opened, and in came the two Morvilles. Guy, without, even stopping to take off his greatcoat, ran at once upstairs, and the next moment the door of his room was shut with a bang that shook the house, and made them all start and look at Philip for explanation. "'Redcliffe temper,' said he, coolly, with a half-smile curling his short upper lip. "'What have you been doing to him?' said Charles. "'Nothing. At least nothing worthy of such ire. I only entered on the subject of his Oxford life, and advised him to prepare for it, for his education has yet been a mere farce. He used to go two or three days in the week to one Potts, a self-educated genius, a sort of superior writing-master at the Moorworth Commercial School. Of course, though it is no fault of his, poor fellow, he is hardly up to the fifth form, and he must make the most of his time if he is not to be plucked. I said all this before him as gently as I could, for I knew with whom I had to deal. Yet you see how it is. What did he say? asked Charles. He said nothing, so far I give him credit, but he strode on furiously for the last half-mile, and this explosion is the finale. I am very sorry for him, poor boy. I beg no further notice may be taken of it. Don't you want an arm, Charlie? No, thank you, answered Charles, with a little surliness. You had better. It really is too much for Amy, said Philip, making a move as if to take possession of him, as he arrived at the foot of the stairs. Like the camellia, I suppose, he replied. And taking his other crutch from Charlotte, he began determinedly to ascend without assistance, resolved to keep Philip a prisoner below him as long as he could, and enjoying the notion of chafing him by the delay. Certainly, teasing Philip was a dear delight to Charles, though it was all on trust, as, if he succeeded, his cousin betrayed his annoyance by look or sign. About a quarter of an hour after, there was a knock at the dressing-room door. "'Come in,' said Mrs. Edmonston, looking up from her letter-writing, and Guy made his appearance, looking very downcast. "'I am come,' he said, to ask pardon for the disturbance I made just now. I was so foolish as to be irritated at Philip's manner, when he was giving me some good advice, and I am very sorry. "'What has happened to your lip?' she exclaimed. He put his handkerchief to it, 
Is it bleeding still? It is a trick of mine to bite my lip when I am vexed. It seems to help to keep down words. There, I have given myself a mark of this hateful outbreak. He looked very unhappy, more so, Mrs. Edmonston thought, than the actual offense required. You have only failed in part, she said. It was a victory to keep down words. The feeling is the thing, said Guy. Besides, I showed it plainly enough without speaking. It is not easy to take advice from one so little your elder, began Mrs. Edmonston, but he interrupted her. It was not the advice. That was very good. I... But he spoke with an effort. I am obliged to him. It was... No, I won't say what, he added, his eyes kindling, then changing in a moment to a sorrowful, resolute tone. Yes, but I will, and then I shall make myself thoroughly ashamed. It was his veiled assumption of superiority, his contempt for all I have been taught, just as if he had not every right to despise me with his talent and scholarship, after such egregious mistakes as I had made in the morning. I gave him little reason to think highly of my attainments, but let him slight me as much as he pleases. He must not slight those who taught me. It was not Mr. Potts' fault. Even the name could not spoil the spirited sound of the speech, and Mrs. Edmonston was full of sympathy. You must remember, she said, that in the eyes of a man brought up at public school, nothing compensates for the want of the regular classical education. I have no doubt it was very provoking. I don't want to be excused, thank you, said Guy. Oh, I am grieved, for I thought the worst of my temper had been subdued. After all that has passed, all I felt, I thought it impossible. Is there no hope for? He covered his face with his hands, then recovering and turning to Mrs. Edmonston, he said, It is encroaching too much on your kindness to come here and trouble you with my confessions. No, no indeed, said she earnestly. Remember how we agreed that you should come to me like one of my own children, and indeed I do not see why you need grieve in this despairing way for you almost overcame the fit of anger, and perhaps you were off your guard because the trial came in an unexpected way. It did, it did, he said eagerly. I don't mind being told point-blank that I am a dunce, but that Mr. Potts, nay, by implication, my grandfather, should be set at naught in that cool—but here I am again, said he, checking himself, in the midst of his vehemence. He did not mean that, of course. I have no one to blame but myself. I am sure, said Mrs. Edmonston, that if you always treat your failings in this way, you must subdue them at last. It is all failing and resolving and failing again, said Guy. Yes, but the failures become slighter and less frequent, and the end is victory. The end victory, repeated Guy, in a musing tone, as he stood leaning against the mantel-shelf. Yes, 
to all who persevere and seek for help said mrs emmonston and he raised his eyes and fixed them on her with an earnest look that surprised her for it was almost as if the hope came home to him as something new at that moment however she was called away and directly after a voice in the next room exclaimed are you there guy i want an arm while he for the first time perceived that charles's door was ajar charles thought all this a great fuss about nothing indeed he was glad to find there was any one who had no patience with philip and in his usual mischievous manner totally reckless of the fearful evil of interfering with the influence for good which it was to be hoped that philip might exert over guy he spoke thus i begin to think the world must be more docile than i have been disposed to give it credit for how a certain cousin of ours has escaped numerous delicate hints to mind his own business is to me one of the wonders of the world no one better deserves that his advice should be followed said guy with some constraint an additional reason against it said charles plague on that bell i meant to have broken through your formalities and had a candid opinion of don philip before it rang then i am glad of it i could hardly have given you a candid opinion just at present charles was vexed but he consoled himself by thinking that guy did not yet feel himself out of his leading strings and was still on his good behavior after such a flash as this there was no fear but there was that in him which would create mischief and disturbance enough charles was well principled at the bottom and would have shrunk with horror had it been set before him how dangerous might be the effect of destroying the chance of a friendship between guy and the only person whose guidance was likely to be beneficial to him but his idle unoccupied life and habit of only thinking of things as they concerned his immediate amusement made him ready to do anything for the sake of opposition to philip and enjoy the vague idea of excitement to be derived from anxiety about his father's board whom at the same time he regarded with increased liking as he became certain that what he called the puritan spirit was not native to him at dinner-time guy was as silent as on his first arrival and there would have been very little conversation had not the other gentlemen talked politics philip leading the discussion to bear upon the duties and prospects of landed proprietors and dwelling on the extent of their opportunities for doing good he tried to get guy's attention by speaking of redcliffe of the large circle influenced by the head of the morville family and of the hopes entertained by lord thorndale that this power would prove a valuable support to the rightful cause he spoke in vain the young heir of redcliffe made answers as brief absent and indifferent as if all this concerned him no more than the emperor of morocco and philip mentally pronouncing him sullen turned to address himself to laura as soon as the ladies had left the dining-room guy roused himself and began by saying to his guardian that he was afraid he was very deficient in classical knowledge that he found he must work hard before going to oxford and asked whether there was any tutor in the neighborhood to whom he could apply 
Mr. Edmonston opened his eyes, as much amazed as if Guy had asked if there was any executioner in the neighborhood who could cut off his head. Philip was no less surprised, but he held his peace, thinking it was well Guy had sense enough to propose it voluntarily, as he would have suggested it to his uncle as soon as there was an opportunity of doing so in private. End chapter 4 Part 1